Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm Baron Sok. I'm president of Tech Freedom. I'm really pleased to be co-sponsoring this event today with my friends and colleagues at the Cato Institute and at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, both of which are represented here on today's panel. Um, I'd like to first start by uh, thanking all of you for coming, uh, asking you to turn off your cell phones, please. Uh, and um, before I turn this over to my uh, colleague, Ryan Radia, who's going to moderate today's panel, I just want to briefly introduce the, uh, the topic. Uh, Tech Freedom launched uh, a year ago today. Many of you may know that I was at the Progress and Freedom Foundation doing this sort of work uh, before launching Tech Freedom. And, uh, and really, uh, when we launched a year ago, we were continuing the same general theme that the Progress and Freedom Foundation had continued for 17 years, which was uh, optimism about technology's capacity to expand all of our um, uh, ability to choose for ourselves, hence our name, Tech Freedom, but also a consistent skepticism about government uh, meddling on the internet. And that's really been our theme, those two things, for the last two years at Tech Freedom. We've been very consistent about that. We've been skeptical about government efforts to design not only a copyright, perfect copyright system, but also to impose other values on the internet, which might be well-intended and legitimate, but from privacy to competition to net neutrality, our, our goal really is to, to do what Hayek said that economics should do, which was to demonstrate to men, in our case, policymakers, how little they understand about what they imagine they can design. Um, that's really our theme. It's a theme that uh, means that we take our opponents' motives uh, uh, at face value. We don't question their intentions, but simply say that they may not, in fact, accomplish what they intend to accomplish because the Internet really is a very difficult thing to, to regulate, no matter how carefully you try. We've been particularly disturbed uh, in this process that, that the efforts to do this have run afoul of some very serious technical concerns, which you'll hear about today, um, but in particular that uh, policymakers in Washington really are starting to wake up because of this issue to how difficult uh, the Internet is to regulate um, and how carefully they need to do so. Uh, the theme that we've most of all uh, harped on here has been whatever you think uh, copyright should do, uh, any effort to, to crack down on rogue, we rogue websites should be pursued in, a, in an open, uh, deliberative, and judicious process. And that's something, unfortunately, we're only starting to see now uh, after most of these, the votes on these bills were, were scheduled to take place. So you'll hear about that today. The theme for today's event is really uh, what's happened on SOPA, on PIPA, uh, what's next for these bills, uh, what the remaining concerns are, and then finally, what lessons uh, we all should learn about how Washington uh, attempts to regulate the Internet, but also how the locus of power has shifted, how people have been, uh, as is our general theme, empowered to voice their concerns about uh, government efforts to regulate the Internet and what this fight about SOPA and PIPA says about other Internet policy issues. So uh, having said all that, um, I also want to just mention that when we launched a, a year ago today, we launched with a book, a really unique collection of essays called The Next Digital Decade, Essays on the Future of the Internet. You can get that free ebook at nextdigitaldecade.com or in all of your e-bookstores. And it's really our attempt to frame discussion about 10 key Internet policy issues, including copyright, from that general theme, uh, from our perspective, about healthy skepticism, which in that case meant bringing together all sides of the issue. So check that out, nextdigitaldecade.com. Uh, for today's event, uh, we're also an open and uh, deliberative process. So if you're following us on Twitter, you can submit questions by responding to tech underscore freedom. That's our uh, Twitter name. So feel free to send those in. I will try to voice those questions in the Q&A, along with questions from the, the um, 100, 150 of you here in the audience today. Uh, and if you want to join the discussion, you yourselves can chime in on the uh, SOPANEL hashtag. That's SOPA, uh, N-E-L. 
ha ha ha. We thank our, our punny friends at the Cato Institute for coming up with that one, so you can't blame me this time. But, uh, but seriously, I'll be watching the hashtag, and uh, we'll try to take questions from that and questions that you send to tech underscore freedom uh, for today's panel. Uh, so having said all that, let me turn things over to, uh, to our panel uh, and just get started by introducing them. Uh, Ryan Radia here is going to moderate today. Uh, Ryan is, um, as many of you may know, the uh, Associate Director of Technology Studies uh, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, Ryan and I work very closely together on a wide range of issues. Um, and uh, you may have seen our coalition letter on SOPA uh, voicing some of our concerns about what this means for um, the moral integrity of the copyright system. Um, to, uh, to Ryan's right is uh, my colleague Larry Downs, uh, senior adjunct fellow at Tech Freedom, author of the wonderful book, The Laws of Disruption. Uh, to his right, uh, James Catuso. Uh, James is a senior research fellow in regulatory policy uh, at the Heritage Foundation and directs their, their research on technology and communications issues and has been, uh, I think, extremely important in getting conservatives and free marketeers to be properly skeptical about the uh, bills we're going to discuss today. Uh, to my left, uh, Julian Sanchez, research fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, also has been extremely outspoken on this issue. Um, to his left, Dan Kaminsky, expert security researcher, who's going to kick us off today before he has to leave by talking about some of the technical background issue and, in particular, some of the cybersecurity concerns raised by the, uh, the bills as drafted. And then finally, to his left, uh, Alan Friedman, research director for Brookings Center for Technology Innovation, uh, also somebody who uniquely brings together uh, an, an understanding of technology, uh, computer science, and policy. So. I'm going to turn things over to Ryan to moderate, um, and we'll have uh, plenty of time for questions. So uh, please hold those for the end. I will uh, make sure to get to you, but feel free to send them our way on Twitter at tech underscore freedom. Thanks. Thanks, Baron. Thank you, Baron. Congratulations on completing your first year, and thank you to the Cato Institute. For those of you in the back, we do have some open seats over on this side. Um, those of you who have been following this discussion about what to do about rogue websites may have concluded that with all the overheated rhetoric and hyperbole from folks on all sides of this issue that the time for substantive discussion is over. We did hope to disabuse you of that notion today. That's why we have a panel, as Baron explained, of distinguished experts who very much value property rights, enforcing these rights, and enforcing intellectual privileges such as copyright. So we'll be discussing the state of play currently in Washington, some of the concerns about the legislation that has been introduced and about the process, and also ways in which this issue can be addressed with a judicious and measured approach that will effectively address this issue without creating excessive or unreasonable unintended consequences. So, so first, since some of you may not have been following this as religiously as others, given how fast things have been moving, I'm going to ask Julian to briefly give us the state of play, since he's been uh, tweeting consistently about the latest updates. Julian, what's going on with SOPA and Protect IP, and what's happened over the last couple of weeks that's important? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to say, this has uh, been a, a really... Uh, 
It's actually been astonishing to watch unfold over uh, the last couple months, and in particular over the last week, uh, a transformation in the conventional wisdom from the presumption that SOPA and PIPA were basically a fait accompli, they were going to uh, pass more or less as drafted uh, with the possibility of some tweaking around the margins, um, to, uh, to a case where it's questionable whether either of them uh, can pass at all, and certainly uh, in, in nothing like their original forms. We saw just yesterday in response to, a, I think, an unprecedented act of coordinated internet protest, I think like 18 senators uh, so far uh, flipping uh, to oppose uh, SOPA and PIPA, including uh, seven former co-sponsors of that legislation uh, withdrawing their co-sponsorship. Uh, we saw congressional websites intermittently down from the traffic of people going to, uh, to learn about the legislation and to contact their legislators. We saw uh, switchboards on the Hill jammed, millions of people signing petitions uh, opposing these bills. Um, and so it's a really kind of extraordinary shift, not just uh, on this particular bill, but in the larger sense that uh, you know, a group of enormous lobbies whose uh, weight in this town is, is well known, uh, finding to their surprise that uh, they, they were perhaps not going to get their way on something that had been such a chief legislative priority. And it's, it's uh, emblematic, I think, of an important shift that uh, the internet itself is, is enabling. Uh, it's a sort of familiar public choice problem, right? The political outcomes tend to be driven by uh, concentrated interests because uh, you know, basically the, the big barrier to exerting political influence is the transaction costs to organizing. So if you have a policy that creates a concentrated benefit and then disperses the costs across a large population, whether it's a, a subsidy or a regulation, uh, you're going to have the people who get the concentrated benefit with a strong incentive to coordinate, to form long-term long institutions like the MPAA or RIAA that are able to you know, coordinate their members and raise funds for, for action. Um, and that no longer apparently obtains because the transaction costs to organization have fallen so low that it's no longer apparent in advance who the players are. It used to be you could say, well, we know MPA will be for this, and you know NRA, AARP will come down here. You know who the players are. You know more or less where they're going to stand on it. But when organization is able to be ad hoc in this way, you don't know in advance who the players are. The players don't know themselves who they are until they discover it through the act of communicating about it. Um, so that's been a really astonishing shift. Uh, in terms of the legislation itself, um, we saw a manager's amendment uh, last month that tried to fix some of the uh, provisions of the legislation that people had objected to. We'll get into some more detail about what those are. Uh, just recently, um, the supporters have finally uh, suggested that they are willing to compromise on what I think had been rightly the most controversial and objectionable provision, which has to do with DNS blocking. I think it is still worth talking about that, first, because we haven't actually seen the new text, so we don't know how, uh, how extensively that's fixed. We don't know, for example, whether uh, it's, it's just the compulsory DNS blocking that's removed or whether there's, uh, they're also taking out the immunity for... Um, sites that decide to you know, go above and beyond in terms of trying to block access to uh, so-called rogue sites. Um, 
and also because you know the language that's been used so far is we need to delay and study it. So it's important, I think, to bear in mind why it's a bad idea if it's something that uh, is likely to make a return at some point soon. Um, so coming up now, we have uh, still, as far as I know, a cloture vote set for the 24th, and Lamar Smith planning to resume markup on the House version, again amended in um, uh, in February. Um, and again, this is a little disturbing because they're saying they have a bunch of fixes to uh, various problems that have been pointed out, uh, but it seems like the lesson of all this ought to be when you're doing something like regulating a complex uh, digital ecosystem, uh, throwing out legislative language and saying, well, we're going to, you know, now we've fixed it, uh, three days from now, we're, we'll move ahead, um, is not a good idea. DNSSEC, uh, which Dan knows all about, has been in development for 10 years. It's a slow process of sort of evolutionary consensus that makes the protocols that make the internet work. Uh, and so to think you can make drastic alterations uh, to them with a couple of days of discussion uh, and, you know, having talked about it with a couple of big stakeholders behind closed doors uh, and, you know, assume that you've foreseen all the problems uh, is, is, I think, the kind of hubris that has uh, led to the backlash we've seen. Thanks, Julian. That's a great overview of what's going on right now and what the state of play will look like in the next couple of weeks. First, let's jump into the DNS filtering issue. As you noted, there has been some willingness from both Chairman Leahy and Smith to compromise on this. While we don't know what the legislative language would look like in detail, there appears to be some willingness to perhaps remove some of these elements. But before we, we switch to the other aspects, let's focus on the DNS filtering aspect and why perhaps it it is good news that it's been removed, or bad news, depending on your perspective. So, uh, Dan, you've written extensively about this issue, and you, you work in the uh, area of internet security, and you have a great deal of experience with this. Just to push back a little, could you, first, could you explain briefly what DNSSEC is, why it matters, and how it could potentially be affected by these proposed pieces of legislation? Absolutely. Uh, DNS is best thought of as the internet's phone book. The internet doesn't run on names any more than the telephone network does. If you want to communicate with someone, you have to know the appropriate number. However, on the internet, more than the telephone network, numbers are changing all the time. So rather than store something's number and then keep it around for 30 years, uh, you are constantly going back to the internet and saying, what's the latest number for this particular www.yahoo.com or google.com or microsoft.com? And the system that allows you to retrieve the fresh numbers, that's called DNS, the domain name system. Now, DNS has been part of the internet since 1983. It is an incredibly successful um, foundation upon which pretty much all internet protocols are designed. You know, I don't know how long people in this room have been using email. Once upon a time, it was a fairly big deal to be able to email someone outside of your organization. Nowadays, you have an address, you put it in, you type your message, you hit send, it's done. DNS makes that happen. It makes all the networks, all the systems, and all the countries just have a shared, it's called a namespace, a way of expressing location, ownership, or so on, where not everyone, you know, I can send mail to someone at Google, but I can't go ahead and override that. I can't, you know, steal mail from Google. But there's a little bit of a fly in the ointment. And the fly in the ointment is that for most of DNS's history, it's never been particularly designed to be secure. 
arguably the internet as a whole hasn't been designed to be secure. You know, our joke is the internet wasn't made to be safe. It was made to move pictures of cats, a thing it's very good at, but uh, we've sort of moved our entire economy over to it. So because you never know quite what you get out of DNS, it turns out that is inherited by all the applications that use DNS. So you know, we, we never really know where email goes. We never really know what website we're communicating with. We think we do. We hope we do. But uh, we don't have assurance that we do. Um, and this is responsible not for all of the compromises we get on the Internet, but it is responsible for about half. About half the time something is broken into, it's broken into because we didn't know who we were communicating with. We are in the middle of a crisis of authentication where we simply are unable to efficiently and affordably build systems that can recognize one another and that can recognize the users that depend on them. Now, usually when we talk about security, it's only doom and gloom, but there's actually some good news. A technology called DNSSEC was proposed in the mid-90s that said, Maybe this foundation that we're basing all this internet technology on, maybe it should actually have some degree of integrity to it. Maybe we should have cryptographic assurance when we get information out of DNS that really is Google.com, that really is Microsoft.com. This would be a foundation upon which the truth can be told and the truth can be verified. And it took a lot longer to build than anyone thought. One of the things that was involved was in 2008, um, I was partially responsible for finding a vulnerability in the domain name system that allowed anyone in the world to go ahead and hijack Google, hijack Microsoft, and so on. Um, we did the best we could to fix the bug at the time. It was a worldwide, secret, uh, very entertaining repair process. But the entire bug was predicted by the work in the 90s. And they said, look, someone's going to attack this. Someone's going to forge stuff. We've got to have a way to get integrity. Because of that break and because of so many people saying for so long it was going to happen, as of the last about 18 months, it has finally started to become possible to validate information that you get from DNS. We have seen DNSSEC deployment far beyond what was expected. Hillary Clinton went to Myanmar, Myanmar joined up with DNSSEC. No one was more surprised, I promise you. So this has been very good, and we're finally on a very smooth engineering track to give updates in our foundation for internet security. And everything was looking good, and then Sopa and Pippa showed up and said, as much as you'd like to be able to tell the truth from DNS, actually, we want to be able to lie. And once it became clear what the impact of legitimized legal lies were going to be and what they would do to the actual code that we had to write to support DNSSEC, um, myself and a number of engineers started, you know, I don't live in Washington. I don't lobby. I'm a coder. We started actually coming out to talk to staffers and to talk to people about the uh, security implications of what this intellectual property legislation was proposing. Thanks, Dan. So DNSSEC sounds great. Lying doesn't sound so great. Being able to know the website you're trying to get to seems important. But SOPA and PIPA aren't about, say, making your internet provider lie when you're trying to get to your bank's website. So 
to the extent that these bills would result in lying when a user is trying to access a website dedicated to infringement, isn't that more of a little white lie? Isn't that a good thing? What's the problem with that for DNSSEC? So it's actually astonishing to me that Congress managed to get in the middle of not only the most complicated part of DNS, but actually the most complicated part of DNSSEC. It's just a challenge to explain this to anyone, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot at it. Um, most of what I do is not DNS. Most of what I do is security. I've worked on the last three versions of Microsoft Windows. I've spent the last uh, 13 years working on Fortune 500 products to uh, uh, introduce this new engineering requirement of security to uh, the technologies that we all run with. So what I do is fixing hard problems. And fixing security problems is interesting because, you know, if you have some code that it crashes a lot and then you make a new version, the fact that the old version is around isn't a problem. If you have some code that is prettier, makes nicer graphics, it doesn't matter there's some ugly graphics around. So other engineering requirements, when the old stuff is still there, it's not a big deal. You can incrementally upgrade to the new stuff. But security is different because you can have the most secure system in the world if the old stuff is still around, if the old plywood door is right next to your big, huge metal four-inch steel door, yeah, the bad guy just goes through the old door and everything is fine. Um, and you've actually not moved the ball. You've not made anything better. So security has long had this issue called a downgrade attack, where you convince a client, you convince something that would otherwise support more advanced security, you say, you know, I'm one of those systems that just hasn't upgraded yet. I haven't gotten with the times. So you should access me the old and insecure way. DNSSEC, it turns out, has a fix for this. And it is a fix that has never been done before and is genuinely revolutionary. In DNSSEC, some systems will, in fact, upgrade. And the reality is some systems will take some time to do so. But... Wherever you are on the deployment curve of DNSSEC, there's always proof. If you go to Citibank and Citibank has upgraded to DNSSEC, you get proof of everything that's there, of all the systems that are there, all the services that are there. You can identify everything. Now, you might go to Bank of America, and Bank of America might say, we have no idea what DNSSEC is. We've been hearing about this technology for years. We're not ready for it. And so, I don't know, I shrug my shoulders. And Bank of America has nothing to do with it. But you know who tells you Bank of America has nothing to do with it? Com. VerisignRuns.com. Everything that ends in .com, Verisign is the company that tells you about. And they actually will tell you, yeah, those Bank of America guys, they have not signed up yet. And here's proof. So it, what's revolutionary is whether or not a given service provider has updated to the new security, you get evidence. If they've upgraded, you get evidence. If they haven't upgraded, you still get evidence. The problem with SIPA, or problem with SOPA and PIPA is when they say block the Pirate Bay or block whatever they block, there's no way for them to provide evidence that the blocking is legitimate. There are cryptographic keys that are embedded in the domain name system those keys are what are supposed to sign whether there is security 
or whether there is not security. When Verizon forges a response as per PIPA, it does not have the cryptographic key. If Comcast were to go ahead and forge the non-existence, it does not have the key. So here we are. I mean, we're actually writing the code for desktops, for computers, for browsers to build the next generation of internet security. And we know we're supposed to, whatever we get back, whether there's security, whether there's no security, we're supposed to see proof. We're supposed to see evidence. Pippa and Sopa say, nope, error, no evidence, can't prove it. This is, by all the internet standards, the clear message, something bad has happened. There's a bad guy, there's an attack, there's a problem. You were supposed to have proof and you didn't. If, so there's three things that I can do when I hit this case, I mean, actually writing the code. The first thing I can do is I can say, well, I tried to be secure, but, you know, something went wrong, go access it anyway. Well, at that point, what was the point of me writing this code in the first place? Because I'm failing security. Something bad happened and I work anyway. There's no safety there. The technology didn't move the ball. So now DNSSEC offers no benefit. The next thing I can do is I can say, well, I tried to see if I could go to Citibank and uh, I got nothing back. Because remember, there's lots of reasons why I might not get an error or might not get stuff. I go ahead. I try to go to Citibank. I don't see the proof that I'm looking for. I have, I just say, block entirely. About 4% of the time, this is not because of government action. This is not even because of a hacker. It's just because I'm on a broken network. Not a lot of broken networks out there. So if I put something into browsers that 4% of the time fails, my code gets removed because you don't get to fail 4% of the time. You get to fail about 0.0001% of the time. So now my code fails robustness. I'm still not going ahead and making the internet stable enough. Um, the last thing I can do is circumvent. I can say I'm on a network, it's a little broken, maybe there's a hacker, I'm going to go ahead and route around the damage. I'm going to go ahead and try these alternate circumventing mechanisms that get me from a 94% reliability rate to a 99.9999% reliability rate. And this is ultimately what we have to do to get to the point that DNSSEC is a secure and guaranteed methodology for showing that advanced new security technologies are available for showing we can make security better. I can do this. It makes things secure. It makes things robust. It'll also bring the pirate bay back. It will also get around PIPA. It will get around SOPA. It, it would be a standard bypass for all of these technologies. Now, if anyone in this room thinks I can walk up to a browser vendor and say, how about you go ahead and circumvent the will of the United States government? I don't get to do that. I'm a legitimate businessman. They're legitimate companies. No one gets to ship stuff that goes ahead and is going to go and reactivate the Pirate Bay. Even if we, we don't care about the Pirate Bay. We care about making it so Citibank can upgrade to new and interesting security technologies. But as a side effect, it's going to go ahead and you know, get around these filters too. So I'm in this situation. I'm either not secure, not robust, or not legal. In any of those... My code doesn't ship, and I can't make the internet safer. Okay, so this DNS protocol, you're saying, just doesn't work with 
the sort of filtering that SOPA and PIPA would require. I understand that. But but policymakers on Capitol Hill, their job is to set policy. Their job is to decide what sorts of products and services companies should be allowed to offer. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't policy guide technology? Why shouldn't you tech wizards get together and come up with a protocol that allows for the government to identify bad websites and filter them? What's so tough about that? Policy did guide security engineering. DNSSEC has been the explicit policy of the United States government for over 15 years. Uh, What actually happened was some engineers went to policymakers and said, hey, the internet is in a lot of danger. If this foundation is not secure, we think this should be fixed. And policymakers said that is absolutely right. This has been part of the policy for multiple administrations. It's been part of the 2003 National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace. In 2008, OMB put out a memo requiring every single government entity to actually participate in the DNSSEC protocol. So there is no engineers operating on their own. There's been widespread consensus that this needs to be fixed. Look, no one is defending the pirates. The pirates are bad guys. But we have this situation where everything in our economy is under severe attack. And as much as we'd like to moralize about why people are just not deploying good, secure technologies. The hard truth is things are insecure because we lack the technological foundation upon which to affordably and efficiently build safe systems. Now, DNSSEC is our best hope for making it possible to build these secure systems. There there are things we lose from DNSSEC. It is much harder for interposed hosts in the middle, like the servers running at ISPs, to interfere. But it's also a lot harder for the bad guys to interfere. So there is something of a balancing. The key is is that there was never a balancing between cybersecurity and intellectual property concerns for the interests of the United States when this legislation was made. When When we walked into the room saying this legislation had cybersecurity concerns, it was like, Fishing game walked in. What do you mean? What are you guys doing here? Um, that was very much the reaction. Um, and, you know, that's okay that people were surprised that there was a security implication, but it's time to start learning from that. Um, there are a myriad of interests. When you manipulate technology, the law of unintended consequences goes into overdrive. And at minimum, before doing anything with legislation, we at least need to have a concrete and well-reasoned, peer-reviewed analysis of what are the impacts and are they in our interest. And that did not happen with this legislation. Thanks. Alan, you have written about what the legislative proposals might mean for Internet governance. So you're a fellow in governance studies, so it's understandable that that's important to you. But for... For everyday internet users and for artists whose content is being ripped off by rogue websites, what's the importance of internet governance and who governs the net and why are these bills even relevant from the perspective of internet governance? Well, I think Dan raised a good point that there's a lot of security that happens because we have really good engineers. There's a lot of good security that happens because there's a market demand for security, but there's also a lot of security that requires policy interventions. Uh, something like DNSSEC 
doesn't provide a lot of benefit for the individual company or person or government that implements it, the benefit comes when all of us work together. So and that's really what internet governance is about. Uh, it is about coordination and it's about managing scarce resources. So coordination is what allows massive interoperability, the basic foundation uh, for the internet. And this is coordinating everything from undersea cables uh, and where they're going to just what your email is going to look like tomorrow morning. Scarce resources, uh, we can think of as just the names and numbers that we're dealing with. So are we going to have a new top-level domain? Uh, who gets what kind of IP address? That sort of thing. Uh, and of course, then there's the political component, the scarce resource that is interests, incentives, business models. And that's really where we, we start to manage. The important thing in any governance process is that the governance process itself can be trusted that it has some validity. Uh, a large portion of what we have on the uh, internet governance falls under the International Corporation for Assigning Names and Numbers, ICANN. Uh, it is important to note that very few people really like ICANN. Uh, the challenge is it's better than most of the other things we've looked at. Uh, there are very few organizations in this century uh, that you can point to and say, well, who died and made you king? And uh, for ICANN, we know it's a guy named John Postel who, who came up with this fantastic system uh, and was starting to figure out very interesting and clever ways to uh, manage its governance. Fortunately, he passed away too young, and, and so we are stuck with uh, a law firm and a process which has had to cobble together its own uh, validity. A lot of people disagree with the small solutions. It has reached out in a couple of different ways. Important thing to know about ICANN is that it is an American nonprofit. It is based in the United States. It has very close relationships with the United States government, including its intelligence community and uh, its Department of Commerce. A lot of people have objected to that, and a lot of countries have objected to this. Now, you can object for a number of different reasons. You can say, listen, uh, one, we're just going to object because we disagree with the outcomes. We're, say, a very large country that can afford to buy the votes of smaller countries. So it's in our best interest to move the internet governance process into what ostensibly looks like a more democratic process like the UN or the International Telecommunications Union. And uh, then we can buy the votes we need to get the necessary outcome. I think it is in America's best interest and it is in the internet's best interest to avoid that fate. It is very important that the United States work with others with the understanding that we need to keep the internet governance process as open as possible away from these very large international bureaucracies. What do these bureaucracies come from? Well, the ITU comes from uh, an environment of state-owned monopoly telecommunications. This is how a lot of countries make their money. And so they seek to impose tariffs and also work with you know, having a very balkanized model. As soon as it comes in the country, everything is ours. Again, this goes against the stated goals of the United States government, as well as a, a lot of countries and a lot, the broader international community. The OECD has released a series of principles devoted to the open internet. So it's one thing to say, listen, we should keep our hands off the goose that lays the golden egg. It's another thing to say, listen, we need to have a set of processes that from its basic foundation reflect this idea of openness. So how does this tie in to the question of SOPA and PIPA? They're really in the 
underlying model, as Dan talked about, of we're, we're sort of reaching our hands into what happens on the global internet. And we're making it clear in our policy that this is the priority, that the interests of one country, the United States, one industry or a very narrow set of industries can dictate policy against you know, certain wishes of other countries. And that's a democratic process. You balance these things. However, the message that we're sending to the larger community is that this is how our government makes policy. And this provides a lot of ammunition for those who would like to alter the process of global internet governance. This is a pretty important time. Dan pointed out this uh, DNSSEC is one of the key foundations of uh, building further security. Uh, there's a lot of coordinative efforts that we're going to have to work through. Uh, how do we handle the security of routing information so that people can't just wander onto the internet and announce that they're the United States government and they should get all the traffic that comes to it? Um, there are scarcity of resources in the transition from IPv4 to IPv6. These things need to be managed carefully. And we need to work on reforming the process we have from a multi-stakeholder perspective. Now, the United States does have a leadership position, but that leadership position is tenuous, and as I mentioned, it's unpopular. The Thanks, important, Alan. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'll just say, closing on, the important thing is not to give further ammunition, uh, which would allow the transition. So the World Congress on uh, International Telecommunications, uh, which is the ITU's uh, grand conference, is going to be happening uh, later this year. And 10 years ago, they negotiated a contract, uh, a, a set of conventions that said, we're going to keep our hands off information exchanges uh, that happen outside of the existing auspices. So countries or private companies can now form global links without going through governments. This has been incredible for wiring the world. And it has helped America measurably. Uh, we don't want to give further ammunition to those who want to renegotiate that convention uh, and move it a different direction. Let's move on to another aspect of this discussion, which is whether internet search engines should be required to stop indexing domains or subdomains that have been found by a court to be dedicated to infringement. Just a couple of days ago, Rupert Murdoch, who has recently began tweeting, tweeted that it's a nonsense argument about danger to the internet. He pointed out the fact that search engines already frequently remove links to illegal content, uh, illegal pornography. They remove copyright infringing links. Many of them even voluntarily censor malware from their search results. So what is the problem, Larry, with asking search engines, uh, requiring them to, to remove links that have been found, domain names or subdomains that have been found dedicated to infringement? And why is there this ale alleged First Amendment right when the Websites here are engaged in criminal conduct, copyright infringement, which is not protected by the First Amendment. Okay, thanks, Ryan. So uh, it's it's worth a moment, I think, to step back a little bit just to say. So what we're we're talking here about is sort of remaining concerns with even the updated versions of the legislation that we've seen, and the reason that some of these things are so difficult is uh, we have to remember that the goal of these bills is to get at uh, foreign so-called rogue websites which by definition are very difficult for United States government and United States private parties to get jurisdiction over because they are outside the U.S. So within the U.S. we have lots of tools, lots of legal tools, lots of policy tools, lots of other tools to uh, enforce behavior uh, either through the law or through convention. 
the goal of these bills was to get at some of the uh, and, and how many is a good question. Sometimes it's you know a handful, maybe it's up to as many as a hundred, a couple of hundred. But you know, truly criminal enterprises operating outside the jurisdiction of the United States, where we can't seize their assets, we can't arrest them, we can't you know literally get uh, our legal hands on them. And what these bills tried to do was introduce a lot of uh, new methodologies, new tools to try to, you know, not get at them because we still can't, but to make it look as if we got at them, to make it look as if these websites went away. And as you're hearing in the discussion about, about DNS, and I think also in this discussion about searches, the, the problem is uh, the, the drafters didn't really think through the technical uh, or policy implications of some of these new tools. It was sort of throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what would stick. So you heard about DNS. So the, the, the search provision, again, it's not, uh, it's not actually taking down a website. It's not taking uh, away any assets uh, from a rogue website. What it's doing is, uh, and, and this is a provision in both bills that's only available to the Department of Justice uh, as part of its enforcement powers under the bills, is that they could get a court order that would require search engines to remove links uh, to to domains or to subdomains or, or pages even that uh, the court determines were, as you say, uh, rogue or, or having illegal content. Um, under the original version of SOPA, the definition of what a search engine was was incredibly broad. It really covered any website that even had a little search box, you know, which they all do. Uh, that's been uh, tempered, I think, considerably in the in the manager's amendment, but it's still uh, is of great concern because essentially what you're doing is you're getting a court order to tell uh, a search engine uh, to remove information that is actually accurate. Right? The, the, the link is accurate. The site is still there. So you're telling the search engine, take take out accurate information. And you can imagine, you know, why that would immediately raise uh, concerns of, of First Amendment uh, uh, people, because this is, uh, as James said, this is a very slippery slope uh, to start to go down, uh, because once you start saying, well, it, it's accurate information, but take it out, because it violates this law. Well, of course, we've got lots of other laws, lots of other regulations. And you can have imagined sort of follow-on saying, well, take this information out because it violates another law. And very quickly, the idea of a search engine, which is supposed to just you know tell you where things are, uh, loses its integrity uh, pretty quickly. So I think you know the First Amendment is a very complex and very detailed and, and nuanced conversation. You can see on its face where it would start to raise those concerns. But I think the bigger issue is uh, you know thinking through what kind of a tool we're talking about here that uh, instead of actually getting uh, access to the, the site and getting rid of it and, or, or you know, arresting or otherwise penalizing the people involved, uh, tries to use technology to pretend something's not there that actually is still there and what kind of mischief that would do in the long term. Thanks. And can you briefly explain whether or not there's a meaningful distinction between requiring search engines to remove unlawful links and requiring them to remove unlawful domain names from their indexing of results? Uh, well, search engines don't, I mean, what, what you get back when you do a search uh, obviously are links. I'm not sure what you mean by removing domains. Well, under, so under SOPA and, and Protect IP, a domain name, a, web, a website found to be infringing, yeah. Would, would would no longer be oh, able I to see. be indexed. Would, right. Whereas right now, the, all, the DMCA yeah. already requires search engines that receive 
takedown notices to remove infringing links. What's uh-huh. the difference between that and this proposal? Well, it's you know it's the next it's sort of the next step in this process again of of removing correct information uh, that that is fact accurate it points to a real site it points to a real link and you know the, sort of the more we start to take things out that aren't actually there the 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 less valuable the whole idea of search becomes. James, your your organization, the Heritage Foundation, has, has done some writing about this recently. That, that many of the pieces of which you have written. Also, your five hundred one c four wing has urged a no vote on these pieces of legislation. What in particular are you concerned about with respect to the definition of a of a rogue website as say a website that is used in any manner or part to facilitate infringement? And second. Uh, why shouldn't policymakers trust the prosecutorial discretion of the hardworking people at the Department of Justice that they won't go after websites that maybe technically fit the definition of the bill but aren't really the bad guys? Well, take the second one first. Um, I think trusting prosecutorial discretion um, is, is a question of what laws are, are, are they are applying. Uh, I, I think it's fair to assume that, that prosecutors would pursue any any law as, as far as they can go. Um, uh, at the very least, it's unpredictable how far they, they would take a, a, a law. You know, when, when you're dealing with uh, legislation like this, there's a lot of judgment that that that, that you're in, you're entrusting in the prosecutor, or if there's a private plaintiff in, in, in the private plaintiff. Uh, I counted in each of these bills some two dozen uh, uses of the word reasonable or reasonably. That, that is a classic weasel word in, in legal circles, and uh, uh, I think would drive any general counsel of a company crazy when, when they're asked to make a prediction about how a, a piece of litigation would would, would turn out. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, um, just generally the, 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 the issue here is, especially in back to the search engines in particular, it's not just the banning of truthful information, but truthful and non-infringing information. The, 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 these bills take a step beyond, the, uh, obviously beyond the, the simple takedown of the DMCA requirements of infringing uses, or even um, uh, more, more uh, stringent steps to uh, block illegal content. It actually, by definition, includes many um, pages, uh, much content that, that, that is perfectly legal. Um, and, and that is uh, a disturbing step in the law. You know, I, I um, remember a number of years ago, I went to uh, what was then East Berlin, and uh, uh, the, the, um, the maps of the city of Berlin showed a big white space where West Berlin was. Everyone knew it was there, but you weren't allowed to talk about it. Now, I'm not saying that the, you know, the, 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 this goes to that, to that level, but um, it um, just uh, um, is troublesome when the government is asking providers of information to pretend that certain information does not exist. You touched on the question of the private right of action, which uh, the most recent amendments to both SOPA and PIPA include, but have been controversial. Given that Heritage and many other conservative organizations are concerned about limiting government spending and, and, and reducing our uh, fiscal situation such that we don't face such a great crisis from the debt standpoint, why isn't it a good thing that private companies, rights holders, are willing to bear the burden of of paying for the lawyers to engage in this litigation 
isn't this a good way of defraying the cost to the Justice Department of going after these rogue websites to, to create a private right of action? You know, it's no secret that there are pluses and minuses to, to, to private rights of action. Uh, uh, it, there are many cases where it does make perfect sense, especially in cases where, where there, there's a large number of violations or uh, potential violations of a particular law or a large number of cases where, where someone is liable. And um, the Attorney General just simply does not have the uh, uh, resources or uh, uh, depth of knowledge to, to pursue the, 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 those cases. The downside is that simply that it's no secret that lawsuit abuse exists. That there, there is an active and organized trial bar that, that has as its interest the extension of litigation, the expansion of litigation at, um, at the expense of, of, of uh, parties who are legitimately trying to, to resolve differences. Uh, and and that, that, that is a danger that um, um, you know, hopefully we, we can solve through lawsuit reform, but it has not been solved yet. So, so we, we need to be, take private uh, 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 suits with, with a bit of caution. Um, looking at this particular case, um, and as Larry said, um, the, the, um, the facts are not specifically clear, but it looks like this is a situation where there's not a large number of of pirate sites that, that, that need to be reined in. You know, this is not the RIAA lawsuit issue where there are hundreds of thousands of individuals and potentially hundreds of thousands of cases. Uh, we're dealing with what I heard is um, you know, probably a few dozen, maybe a, a hundred different sites, uh, which seems to be uh, well within the, the range of uh, the resources of, of the Attorney General. So you know, bottom line, the way I look at it is that the private plaintiffs are not needed. Um, um, one other thing I'd, I'd throw in, too, is, you know, this issue is much discussed. I, I rarely hear anyone mention the fact that under the current bills, uh, only two of the four third-party restrictions are subject to, to private uh, litigation. Uh, and th those are the two less controversial provisions, the, the, the restrictions on ad uh, advertising services and the restrictions on financial service providers. Not that those are, are beyond uh, um, uh, critique, but... Um, uh, the most controversial parts of this bill have only uh, AG enforcement. The uh, definition of a rogue website in SOPA is one of the definitions with respect to the Attorney General's right is based on the 2008 Pro-IP Act. It relies on existing law that authorizes the government to seize domain names uh, of U.S. websites of U.S. registered websites that are facilitating copyright infringement. Uh, you, you've written about this, Julian. Is, does it trouble you that we're relying on existing law? And if so, what, what is the problem, in your view, with the definition in the Pro-IP Act? So if you, if you actually look at the history of how that authority has been used by the Department of Homeland Security, you see a number of problems. Uh, I mean, so there's a, a pretty well-publicized case of a music blog, a hip-hop blog, uh, that was seized uh, for uh, over a year. Uh, and it turned out, eventually was able to basically persuade the Department of Homeland Security that the tracks that had been posted on the blog that were supposedly uh, his, his, you know, evidence of his criminal copyright infringement had actually been provided to, to the blogger by PR firms in the employ of the music labels themselves who were hoping that bloggers would circulate these to drum up interest in new artists. Uh, and so finally, a year later, you know, he's able to sort of establish this and they sort of sheepishly uh, return his domain. Uh, but I think, you know, especially when you're talking about sites around the world, um, you uh, you know, you, you have a very high risk of error in particular because, uh, you know, I think the, the point James made here about the, the mixing 
of uh, legitimate and illegitimate content in, in one place. I mean, if you listen to what the backers of these bills say about what are the rogue sites, what are the, the, these worst of the worst sites that we need to take down that prove we need new legislation, they talk a lot about linking sites, that is, sites that do not necessarily themselves host infringing content, but link to it elsewhere on the internet, uh, and often the place it's linked to is file lockers, online cloud storage sites uh, that can be used to store basically anything. You can uh, keep a backup of your hard drive there, you can keep uh, an infringing movie file there, you can keep a big file you're trying to send to uh, you know, your cousin overseas of your, uh, of your wedding. Uh, there's the, the legitimate and the illegitimate content are mixed together. And when we talk about linking sites, you know, I mean, if you, you know, poke around a little bit, uh, where do people link to infringing content? Well, a lot of it is big discussion boards, right? So big discussion forums where there's a section where people are talking about music and then people are also saying, well, here's where you can get that new album. And, you know, bad, bad for them for doing that. Uh, but the question is, in, in terms of having a remedy that is tailored to the actual problem you're trying to solve, saying take that page down, take that post down, which is the DMCA approach, uh, is very different from saying block the site because there's enough different pages that uh, we, you know, basically the, the baby and the bathwater both need to get hurled out the window. Um, in addition, I think if you, if you look at some of the arguments that the government makes uh, in interpreting its authority, uh, you should have a lot of concern, especially when you think about having the same authority uh, deployed by private parties who are able to find, you know, a friendly judge in a friendly district somewhere. Um, in a case involving a Spanish site called Roja Directa, um, it basically was a site that compiled links, among other things, it compiled links to uh, places where you could, you could find streams of uh, sporting events. A lot of these were, of course, infringing. Uh, it was a site, though, that had been ruled legal under Spanish law, where it was operating, uh, repeatedly. It was still seized because it was registered in the U.S. Um, so without necessarily defending that site's business model, they did say, try to make this argument, look, we are legal under Spanish law. Um, and the response from the government was interesting. It said, look, uh, you seem to be under the misapprehension that we are suing you or charging you with criminal copyright infringement. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh This is an in-rem action against the domain itself, right? We do not have to meet the burden of proving you guilty of criminal copyright infringement subject to the standard of proof that would apply if we were doing that. Uh, we need to make a prima facie showing to the court, the court agreed, and now the burden is on you, basically, to make the affirmative case uh, for, for why you should have your domain back. Now, you know, actually earlier this week I was on a panel with uh, Dimitri Shapiro, CEO of a company called Vio, uh, was sued, uh, it was a video streaming site, it was innovative, sued by some of the major studios for copyright infringement, won after great expense. Um, then, of course, the uh, movie studios appealed, and then they won the appeal. But by the time they won the appeal, they were bankrupt. So, uh, you know, they were offline anyway. So, you know, ask yourself what happens if companies that do have a history of, you know, being very aggressive about making these claims, um, you know, to, you know, in part attack their competitors, um, is able to say not only, you know, do you have to fight this suit, but... What we get to do up front, if we can convince a judge who hasn't heard your side yet that we have a claim with merit, is ensure that during the course of this, until you've won your case, uh, not only do you have to pay your lawyers, but by the way, you can't make ad revenue. And by the way, no payments from your users are going to go through. So yeah, you have no funds. Um, 
so now go and try and find an investor to back you through this litigation. Um, that's that's going to be a, a difficult uh, proposition. And this is, I think, especially concerning, again, when you're talking about something where de facto the effect here is to shut down websites, which are inherently a form of speech, not all of which is legitimate, but it is inherently sort of a speech-based enterprise. And so then to say, uh, you know, we're going to make it this easy uh, to, in effect, block sites that don't meet with the approval of private actors, private copyright holders, or the attorney general, um, you know, creates enormous problems. So it seems that this, these bills, if enacted, would perhaps impose a greater burden than already exists on websites based around user-generated content to police for infringing activity. Uh, currently, as long as websites take down links that are illegal when they're informed that those links are infringing, and as long as they comply with a few other requirements, they don't get in trouble. But with respect to any affirmative burden to police, virtually no such burden exists. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Did, why, is, why shouldn't the websites have a greater burden to police for infringement? I just want to mention, incidentally, that, you know, there's an old philosopher's joke. You know, one philosopher says, uh, look, you, you, uh, you say you have refuted my argument on the basis of these counterexamples. You've obviously misunderstood me. Um, you've, you have not interpreted me as I intended, because I didn't intend my argument to have counterexamples. Uh, and so we see something of the same thing in, in this legislation. Um, there's you know, sort of a, a series of clauses up front that say, this shall not be construed to be... Um, a prior restraint under the First Amendment, uh, and uh, this shall not be construed in a way that hampers cybersecurity, and this shall not be uh, construed to imply an affirmative duty by sites to monitor content. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't just add, and you know, this legislation shall not be construed to have any bad effects, and then anyone who complains can say, no, look, it's right in the legislation, it won't have any bad effects. Um, you know, the practical effect is that even if they say you don't have an affirmative obligation to monitor, um, if you are a skittish website trying to attract investors, uh, you know, in effect, your best guarantee of not being branded a rogue site is to affirmatively monitor. Or, you know, if you're an information location tool, you know, it's not just search engines, information location tools in the U.S., if you are, uh, you know, worried about being... Uh, smacked with a, a fine or a contempt ruling for uh, not violating a court order to uh, to filter, your best defense here is to implement some more proactive mechanism of, uh, of, of filtering that stuff out. Um, and that, you know, again, that's a, a costly and, and, and burdensome affair and runs against, I think, the, the sort of end-to-end -end principle that the internet has run on, which is, you know, in general, stuff is open uh, and you can you know, uh, get stuff up, get it out there uh, without permission in advance. And, and this, I think, just cuts against, cuts against uh, the spirit of that in, in a way that makes it harder to run the kind of platforms that, uh, you know, have been so innovative. I mean, so when you think about something like YouTube, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in YouTube involving, um, you know, use of copyrighted material in innovative and transformative ways that I think uh, you know, qualifies as fair use. All sorts of really fun and interesting video mashups that use relatively small components of copyrighted works. Um, you know, if you're trying to proactively police, if you're trying to filter in advance, um, you know, software has trouble telling a difference between, uh, you know, an, an illegitimate pirate copy and something making a fair use of, uh, uh, of, of copyrighted material, uh, you, you are going to tend to get over-blocking when you create an, an incentive structure that says, um, if you are aggressive about taking things down, you are immune from liability. Uh, and 
also you're immune from liability for going too far, uh, you know, it's, it's, then that's an incentive to go too far. The latest rumors suggest that there's currently a backroom deal being worked on in the Senate involving Chairman Leahy and Senator Kyle that might take Protect IP and remove, in addition to the DNS provisions, also the internet search engine provisions and the private right of action, leaving a bill that would give the Attorney General a right to follow the money, essentially. This would be a, a limited approach compared to what we've seen. However, some commentators have, have pointed out that the reliance on the rules of civil procedure to govern these lawsuits might be insufficient because of the speech that is at stake. They've pointed out, for instance, that the, the error costs of preliminary adjudication are, are too high where potentially overbroad injunctions are concerned, meaning a, a website who is defending itself might not have time to show that it's not unlawful, or perhaps a judge faced with limited time might make a mistake. Another concern that's been raised by some is that many of these foreign rogue websites or foreign innocent websites when targeted by the attorney general might default. They might not be able to afford U.S. counsel, so they might not show up, in which case a court would generally take as true whatever allegations the attorney general is making without vetting the evidence. Uh, Larry, do you think these are valid criticisms, and do you think, do you think that the, or, the why shouldn't the ordinary rules that govern lawsuits apply when the attorney general is trying to act against an allegedly uh, rogue foreign website? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in a short answer, it's, it's, that's not the end of the world. Um, it, it clearly, uh, and I don't necessarily agree with the interpretation of the Department of Justice already with how they're using pro-IP. Uh, I don't think it's entirely clear that seizing domain names uh, from registries, uh, from, from registrars, was in fact contemplated uh, as, as the kind of uh, civil forfeiture Procedure that was that was uh, you know was more after physical things. Of course, civil forfeiture itself is a difficult area. Lots of criticism and may ultimately prove uh, unconstitutional if it uh, keeps being stretched. You know the thing about the the procedural the, you know the the due process again like the First Amendment it's extremely subtle uh, uh, set of arguments. It's clear though that that what the bills do is sort of push the envelope on due process. Yes, it's true. Preliminary injunctions are part of the rules of civil procedure. In-rem actions are a long-standing uh, alternative to, uh, to, to uh, you know, personal jurisdiction. These are very uh, sort of subtle things. But what we've seen already is under Pro-IP, the Department of Justice pushing even that push as far as they, they possibly can, saying that uh, they need an emergency injunction to get domain names seized because otherwise the asset will be moved. Well, the asset can't be moved. It's, that's impossible. And, you know, operating in secret, not letting the other adversary, uh, because it's in REM, you know, there's no person, so you don't have to show them that your, your, your documents and so on. Um, it doesn't set a particularly good precedent uh, internationally, but also, I think, nationally, to push due process to its limit to see just how far you can get it. And it's not necessary. Uh, also, it's not effective. The, the better, you know, to the extent that the, the problem is, as it's described, the worst of the worst foreign rogue websites and so on, uh, the much better uh, mechanisms for trying to make headway here are, uh, as James said, the, 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 or you said, the follow the money, the, the ad networks and the payment processors. Those seem, you know, reasonable uh, ways of going about it, whether we, we do it the right way or the wrong way is another matter altogether. 
but uh, it, it isn't clear that that, uh, that sort of you know relying on the, the sort of limits of civil procedure and the and pushing that up against due process is the best way to educate consumers that they should obey copyright. Right? It's like they're saying you know you're not obeying copyright, so uh, you're bad, and the way we're going to prove that is by pushing due process as far as we can until we're bad. And it, it, it doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't set the, the, the right kind of tone. Can I just amplify slightly? I just sure. point out that, you know, we're talking about civil forfeitures is, again, something that's really designed for the context of, you know, seizing, seizing a drug dealer's car kind of thing. Um, you know, when you seize a drug dealer's car, the drug dealer is unhappy and, like, maybe his girlfriend. But, um, but it doesn't have wider effects in the same way as when... Uh, you know, again, an entire domain, maybe where American citizens have been engaging in and continue to engage in uh, conversations with other people around the world, uh, a domain where American citizens may have their own, again, legal content stored in, in, in cloud storage for their own use and access. Um, when a domain is seized, all of those people's interests are implicated in a way that isn't the case when you're, you know, again, seizing a drug dealer's car.